to Diversity Rocks Innovation, Volume 12. My name is Jackie Steele. I'm a longtime Canadian political scientist living and teaching here in Japan, and also the CEO and founder of Enjoy Diversity and Innovation. Enjoy is a Japan-based global-facing business working in English, Japanese, and French to support leaders and corporations in building out diversity-positive workplaces and corporate cultures. We believe and know that diversity rocks innovation. We are interested in inclusive innovation that amplifies and supports equality and that powers our people systems for personal and collective good for the long game. And this live stream shines a spotlight on the beautiful diversity of Enjoy Thought Partners who are really showing up with their own radical individuality and who are really leading the change for inclusive diversity positive and gender equal leadership in Japan. So each week I invite one of my collaborators to thought partner out loud with me. And we show up just as two human beings, throw out the, the business cards we throw out uh, and uh, get rid of the senpai kohai dynamics that we can sometimes get trapped in in Japan. And we leave behind all the different toxic hierarchies that maybe our society keeps pushing onto us for gender or race or age or ability. Um, we're just, we're wanting to defy those outdated outdated and frankly anti-democratic cultural hierarchies that plague our society, even in 2021. So today we show up for each other in all of our human messiness, our complex diversity, and we commit to just enjoying all the individuality that comes through a laid back and collegial exchange of ex expertise, worldviews, identities, professional experience, and of course, lived experience. So my guest today, and a wonderful thought partner is Joy Jarman Walsh. I am so excited to host JJ because her pioneering example uh, of launching a really innovative YouTube and podcast series, uh, the Seeking Sustainability Live series, is literally what is the inspiration for this Enjoy live stream. I saw what she was doing and I was invited to uh, her show and I saw, wow, this is fabulously exciting. Um, I didn't know people could do this and I had never seen somebody do this ingenious, uh, this ingenious thing. And I went, I, I should, I should do that for diversity. I should maybe change the conversation on diversity. Like JJ Walsh is doing it for sustainability. And I thought, wow, Eureka. And a live stream was born. So JJ, welcome to Diversity Rocks Innovation. And thank you so much for your inspiration. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm so excited to be here because yes, diversity and innovation does rock. And I'm really happy to be a part of your amazing project and your conversation that's connecting these great ideas from various people to a wider audience. So I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Great. Well, I mean, We've had certainly a variety of conversations about things we have in common and we've shared, but certainly for those who are joining us, maybe for the first time and are maybe meeting you from the first time, um, I can certainly, you know, do a shout out to my mom, who I think is joining from Vancouver um, and who doesn't know anything about you. And I'm sure will be fascinated um, among other people who are joining from around the world and in their time zones. Um, if you were to, you know, do it, if we were to do a deep dive a little bit into the backstory behind JJ Walsh. Um, could you walk us through maybe how you want to think forward on your, your upbringing, which, which sort of parts of your identity or your diversity or your experiences that really set the stage for your values and how you show up today in 2021? Sure. Um, so I grew up in Hawaii and I always think about the way I was one of the minority of white people in my group in Hawaii and all my friends were very multiracial and I envied that in so many ways and uh, learned so much about different cultures, especially Asian cultures in Hawaii. We had a lot of Japanese culture. Um, I grew up with a strong connection to nature because we're in Hawaii Mm. I had a really strong connection to animals, just loved animals. We had a lot of animals. And uh, my stories of like pets or my feeling about even eating meat as a child really has kind of, it's interesting to look back on now trying to be vegan and trying to, you know, live 
my life in a way that I think is is more honest to how mm-hmm. I feel. And it's not it's not everybody's truth, even in my own family. It's, you know, nobody else was experienced that way. Um, but I had very supportive parents, a great family life. Um, <laughs> you know, we always had family time. Um, we always did family adventures. Um, so even though we were based in Hawaii, we we did so many interesting things, which are like travel. And okay. so being in Hawaii, it's a popular tourism place as well. So in many ways, what I'm doing now, <laughs> trying to promote more balance for local people and tourists is also informed by growing up in Hawaii. And then even even on a different level, not wanting to leave Hawaii as a teenager, Mm. going kicking and screaming when my parents decided, you know, it was time to go live near my grandmother, who was elderly in Virginia, and resisting that change so much. Mm. But realizing now, you know, it's easy now, many years later. Um, Yeah, but realizing now that that change was so important for me in mm-hmm. terms of what I ended up going on and doing in my university, in my career, and the perspectives of change is not bad, you know, and a change mm-hmm. of, of point of view and a change of environment and a change of people around me really opened me up to a lot of different ideas and more empathy towards others who are, are different and I can also empathize for a lot of my Japanese students as I was teaching here um, because they have a similar kind of closed view from their perspective growing up in Japan. And I did as well in Hawaii and I didn't want to change. But uh, Mm. then I saw how going and studying abroad for the Japanese students really opens their world too. Mm. And how, you know, travel can be this really positive way to connect with other people and other cultures and have more empathy and connection I think yeah be able to see other people right and to see I guess that I mean I guess one thing I find interesting when you when you had to leave Hawaii and you were going to I guess what would would that be called the mainland yeah um I mean, for some, in some ways you have then in, in your next phase, you experience was, I guess, the quintessentially stereotyped part of America, maybe more than what you had in, in Hawaii, which is not really the stereotypical American way of life, right? And all of the different assumptions about Americanness that comes out of the mainland, right? Um, yeah. I got, what was I that got like? To- well, it was it was pretty wild because all of a sudden I was one of the majority. Mm. And that in itself was was really freaky. And I was in a group of mostly white students. And the way that they talked about people who were not white was something I'd never heard before. You know, like you called the Howley growing up in Hawaii. And, you know, it's very similar to like being called the Gaikokujin or Gaijin in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, being part of the majority and I felt really uncomfortable with that, you know, and, and so I'm really glad that I had that childhood being rarely part of the minority and being mm-hmm. part of such a multicultural, multinational situation, which has right. definitely made me more comfortable living in Japan again as a minority, right? right. <laughs> But in no way can I compare my situation to people of color and and their experiences, of course. And I had so much privilege on many, many levels and probably even now, you know, being in Japan as a a white person. But it, it certainly made me see differences in how people are are seen by who they are, what gender they are, what color of their skin they are. And as a teacher later on, I, I try to own my own bias. And I, I think this is something that's so hard, but so important um, mm-hmm. for anybody. And I, I hope business leaders do this. I hope teachers do it. I hope government does it. 
you have to realize that you have a bias towards right. some students. And so I would ask the students to write their name and their student number on the back of their papers. So when I was reading their essays and their tests, I didn't know who it was. You know, I mean, on that basic level, can we apply that to mm. our society in some way? Because we know there's a bias for gender. We know there's a bias for, you know, different <clears throat> names or where people went to university. So, you know, in, in many ways, I think I'm really grateful to have such an interesting, diverse background in where I lived and who I knew. And it's informed me, of course, you know, I've grown and uh, become more aware in my 20s. I thought I knew it all, you know, came, <laughs> came to Japan after university. I studied psychology. I had a place in uh, going back to grad school and continuing with counseling in psychology. I had my whole life plan, you know, already written. It's going to be like this. And uh, everything changed being in Japan, just being in such an interesting environment and a new culture even though I came to Japan thinking I knew everything about Japan because I grew up in Hawaii and I knew oh, how to use hashi and I, I <laughs> Japanese food and I knew a little bit of bone dancing from the local school festival um, and realizing that even in Japan we're talking about a lot of different you know areas Culture. and people and and it's really diverse, even in Japan, which maybe looks the same, right? Yeah, for so sure. That, that was really interesting. It's it's interesting how, I mean, and this is sort of, I guess, partly the 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 challenge that that I've been looking through, you know, twenty years of the research on diversity and Japanese citizenship, and I'm sure you know you've looked at it and experienced that in academia as well. But it's it's getting to the point where there is an acknowledgement of the incredible diversity in Japan and the incredible diversities of Japanese-ness over time, right? I mean, so often, uh, you know, we talk about mansplaining, right? But we can also talk about Japansplaining, you know, where, you know, as a, as a gaijin or as a foreigner, how many times do individuals, well-meaning, well-meaning Japanese nationals who, who come up and Japansplain to you, <laughs> And you sort of think, well, and they'll say, well, this is just the tradition. This is this is the Japanese tradition. And I'll say, well, which Japanese tradition? Are we talking about like traditions from the Tokugawa era? Are we talking about traditions that are like, you know, Meiji forward? Are we talking about like more recent traditions? Because there's a whole different layer, you know, of which traditions we want to cling to and then say that's traditional Japan. Um, and the look you get back right, when you ask that question is sort of, but of course, every country has this evolution, right, of their own traditions and of their own cultural practices. And of course, like you say, even, you know, I think Hiroshima, I was thinking, I, I don't know very much about Hiroshima. I don't know what are the specific distinctiveness elements of the culture. Or if I think about what is, you know, distinctively unique to Hokkaido versus Okinawa versus, I mean, obviously looking from a citizenship perspective, yes, I've looked at that. But beyond that, there's so many local flavors that we take for granted that really I think in Japan we celebrate in food culture I think in Japan right like the 47 yeah. different ramens <laughs> we can celebrate the diversity there but do we really go beyond and then think through how does that how does that morph and and you know I was very much participating in the Japanese Canadian taiko community in, in Canada and the Japanese Canadian community experience is vastly different right. from Japanese yeah. culture in Japan vastly different, right? And so when you're talking about, you know, doing the obon dance or doing, you know, having the taiko group in, in Hawaii and, and participating in, in all of those cultural festivals that are Japanese American, that particular experience is really different, right? From, from Japanese Japanese-ness. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm glad to hear you say that you don't know much about Hiroshima. And even after 20 years here, I'm still discovering you know, things that I like about Hiroshima or hmm. different pockets of Hiroshima local culture that I didn't know about. And what really infuriated me, and I think the reason we started Get Hiroshima in 99, was the attitude of travel magazines was they knew everything about Hiroshima and Hiroshima wasn't worth visiting. 
Hiroshima oh, yes. was just a stop off to see Peace Park or Miyajima and then get back on the train, go somewhere else more meaningful. And, mm. you know, living, living here, we were in Kyushu for three years. We traveled around Asia and a little bit of Europe for 18 months. We came back. Our first job back in Japan was in Hiroshima. And then you start realizing how much is here and how interesting. And yeah. there's, this is a great place and people should not stop over for two hours and get back on the train, right? Yeah. So that, that kind of started us on the journey of, introducing local festivals, introducing uh, restaurants and places to eat and drink. That's not your typical gaijin place, you know, and that's, that's why we started Get Hiroshima. And then more recently, uh, Get Hiroshima has become kind of an information hub and kind of a community support thing for international people and Japanese in the community who want to communicate about latest COVID information, for example, which is hard to find or, you know, during the, the big tsunami um, and people trying to find friends and family in other areas and using like message boards and stuff. So nice. it's, it's become kind of a community hub in that way. And, and that was kind of changing over time and, you know, depending on the need. And that brings me to one of my points I really want to say oh. over and over again today, which also connects to my youth is about uh, seeing individually a case-by-case situation, right? And I said this before about owning your bias, but recently there's been kind of a buzzword about intersectionality, right? Have you heard this? It's it's been used in in many ways, which is so relevant and so important. But actually it's it's just seeing people as individuals, as diverse, right? And and all of the complications, right, of what happens when we do look at the overlapping elements of that individuality. And until you really start doing that deep, nuanced look, you know, we can't, I, I mean, I often explain it that we don't, we don't live single issue lives, right? Yeah. It's, if, if you're being, if you're feeling a sense of maybe exclusion, is it because you're a woman? Is it because you're white? Is it because you're Canadian? Is it because you're not a Japanese uh, mother tongue speaker? Is it, you know, which part of it is the reason? Well, who knows, right? You're not, you're not always sure until you can really grasp the full depth of the context of why things were playing out in those ways and what were the, what were the, the, la- the, the rationale behind the way you were treated. And sometimes you can't always get all, all that information that you need, right? So, but we can think about building our systems to say, we know where those inequalities manifest. And if we can at least try and mitigate against as many of them as possible in the corporate culture or in the corporate ecosystem or in a, in a business or in a university class or in a university system, in those people systems, I mean, as a political scientist, yes, working on Canadian intersectionality for 30 years, right? Yeah. I mean, in Canada, we do, this is our, like, really what we do in public policy yeah. across the board. And we're always we're always sort of, mitigating for bias on like 15 fronts <laughs> because we because we know that there's at least and I can you know reel off at least the 10 to 15 that are going to be possible causes of inequality yeah. in any given system or ecosystem or you know uh, dynamic right and so when you know that you can you can plan and you can mitigate but this um, is, but the this devil's is, in the details yeah, right the sure. devil's in taking the time and it's it's like we also sort of I feel like I don't know. This is in the DNI space. When I'm listening, I often feel that there's a, a naivety that we can just, oh, well, you're a woman. You understand everything about inequality that women face. And so there's kind of a naivety to say that any, any woman can know everything about how to design for equality or any LGBTQ person with that experience can know how to mitigate and build a system that's queer positive. As if it were that simple, <laughs> you're yeah. sort of thinking, this is like law and policy, technical yeah. design, yeah. when we're talking about systems and corporate ecosystem, right? It's not actually that simple. It's a very sophisticated process of, of legal and policy analysis and then understanding psychology and it's psychology it's, too. Yeah, right? for sure. And I'm, I'm so grateful to have studied psychology in university. And it's, you know, it's really made me consider things 
I think more than if I had studied something else. So I, I'm mm. really grateful to the four Absolutely. years that I studied that. But it's it's also this intersectionality or not being able to see things case by case is one of the big failures that I see over and over again in Japan. And it's mm. been ebbing slowly over time. So what we're seeing right now with a lot of women who are really struggling because there hasn't been support for working women in particular, they're the ones who are you know, raising children and cleaning the house and having less secure jobs. And then coronavirus happens and they lose a lot of the security that they were just hanging on to. And the government hasn't given support again this year that they gave last year. And we're seeing you know, increases in suicide rates. Yes. of women. So these these are we like you said before we know there's certain structures that should be in place by government by corporate structures which do work and which do support but we, we have know. to we have to reassess the holes. We have to reassess yeah. what's not working and who it's not working for and perhaps <clears throat> that's why we're having a lot less people having children, you know, because of course. It, that group falling through the gap is the one that would be having children. You well, know? and I think, I mean, I, I mean, when we think about, and one of the things I often talk through over, I mean, intersectionality from the approach is it allows us to map all, all the different groups affected because it's never just one group affected. Even if we take caregiving, right? If we take childbearing, it's never just women that are affected ultimately. And the caregiving issue is huge in Japan. Right. Um, and we, I get frustrated because it's often misdiagnosed as a woman's problem, right? But really, when you think about caregiving, there's so many levels of caregiving that is required as a safety net in a society. One is, yes, child caring. Two is elder care. Three is caregiving for people with disabilities, whether they are a child or a dependent who still needs caregiving, right? Um, so all of those elements. And then you have people who are elderly who maybe have mobility challenges, so they don't need a full-time caregiver, but they still have those elements. That, that is a social safety net making sure that citizens can fulfill their caregiving responsibilities to their families and their extended families um, while maintaining paid work. And I know it, what's been frustrating for me, 25 years of following Japanese public policy is that this piece is not being solved in a meaningful way. And yet it is of course the cross-cutting issue for the declining birth rates, the, the families are finding that if, if companies won't support them in their child rearing responsibilities, then it's an and or choice. It's an and, I either have children or, you know, but you can't do both because my company won't support necessarily my child rearing responsibilities if it's requiring a 10 hour day or a 14 hour day, <laughs> right? As it may be. And that's despite not even having job security often putting in a 10 hour day, right? And so you're, you know, the women that you, you hear of or the men that you hear of, and certainly in our relationship, we have lived this where it's like, okay, who's who's dropping children at well, I, 7.30, I right? Would, and then race I back. Take, I would take my university students to talk, when I was teaching in the business department, I would take my university students to visit successful women who were heads of companies, and they they would say it very clear. Mm. I I knew if I wanted to have a career, if I wanted to run my own business, having kids was either something I did before I started or something I wouldn't yeah. do. Right. So having that yeah. that balance, you know, and it if if companies' heads are looking for it, they'll see it. If they ask their workers, they'll hear it. Um, and it. that's and that's about sustainability too, right? Like everything, of course it is. Everything is connected. You know how you treat your staff is connected to how much income you make because customers like to support your brand, which is connected to are you taking care of the environment? Are you using yeah. a lot of waste that nobody can recycle? Right? It's right. it's all interplaying and interlocked and interconnected Absolutely. on so many levels. That you that's that's so difficult about like the the program that I'm doing is people are like, what exactly are you talking about? Why are you talking about that? And everything is connected is, is connected to everything I mean, we think about, you know, 
often it's not really diagnosed in this way, but the caregiving issue in for me, I you can't easily say, here's the hard, here's the hard data that you know, this many individuals have quit their jobs or leaned out or refused a promotion because of caregiving responsibilities. We don't have the data. Companies don't collect this data. Companies, if they're not doing an exit survey, they don't even know why their people are leaving, right? All they talk about is, oh, well, the women won't raise their hand for promotion when we try and promote them. So there's something wrong with the women. I'm like, well, maybe they're not seeing any women managers who are having work-life balance and who have kids. So they're doing the math in their heads and going, all of those individuals work a 14-hour day and I have two children and I have to actually get home for a daycare pickup by no later than seven. How do I work that day and get home to my children if I don't have a spouse who can do that? And maybe that's, you know, their spouse is doing a 14-hour day at their company. So then you're really in this crunch, right? But the solution is to not ask and do exit surveys about why are people leaving and to figure it out. Why are you not raising your hand for promotion? Instead, it's women don't don't want the promotion. Don't ask, don't tell, right? I think if you really think women don't want promotion, like really, you think women don't want to be promoted? I think they do if it's under their own conditions, right? It reminds me of a, a student of mine years ago who wanted to be a dolphin trainer. And she graduated university and it freaked her family out, but she became, she went into all the training, which you have to pay for to do the training. And I met her in Hawaii at like Sea Life Park and she smells like fish and she's cute Japanese girl carrying buckets of fish. And, you know, she ended up doing all the training, paying a lot of her own money, eventually getting to a trainer position and they paid her peanuts. And the work conditions were awful, but it's, it's a job, which is so high in demand that they don't have to treat you well. They don't have to pay you a decent wage, right? And I get this impression from a lot of companies in Japan that they are treating Mm -hmm. their jobs like as if it was in as high demand as a dolphin trainer. (laughs) So I like, I like know, this analogy. I'm going to use yeah. it. <laughs> your, your job is not really the dolphin trainer, you know, like not, you don't have people dying to get this job. So how is it really gonna, the dream job? Yeah. So how are you going to take better care of your staff? How are you going to listen to them to see what they really want and need and adjust it so that you can keep good staff because that'll help you cut right. your costs. That'll help you have a better brand overall, right? I mean, there's so many. I think things. there's also a time lag in that, like you suggest, there. You know, we're we're still in the lifetime employment model, right? Where the companies all do their their recruitment of new grads at the same period, and it's this forced competition where they put all new grads up against each other in a very specific period to get those those you know, jobs, right? And it's at a set period of time. I was like livid because I would have, you know, my students in the law faculty missing my lectures because they were doing their shusho katsudo and trying to go to these jobs. And I'm like, you are not graduated yet. You're supposed to be in class. Why are the companies allowed to hold this during the school hours of when the university, you know, the university uh, campus, we're still in session, like half it after the session. Why isn't this regulated for one? And then two, why is it made into this intense competition at this one point in time? Because it gives them, it creates this false sense of competition that they can have the pick of the best, right? And then everyone is desperate to just get an offer and to, to land an offer within their, you know, within their either their year three or their year four first uptake in the fall because they don't want to be left empty-handed after they graduate and look like a failure to their parents, right? And you sort of think, we're in a we're in a talent crunch. There is such a shortage yeah. that companies are no longer having the luxury of assuming that any offer is like the golden handshake, like the dolphin trainer position. And yet I think what I see from the large companies is they still assume that there is an abundance of talent out there and that they don't necessarily have to be maybe thinking about quality of life offerings. What are the, what is the broader package that they're offering to young people who do expect to have a family? I think it's more valuable. I think once they realize that if you listen to what they actually want and need from you as women coming into your company or anybody coming into your, like listen to what they want and need, 
that's more valuable than a higher salary because now we're starting to see the yeah. salaries go up because of you know low workforce but the company that's starting to offer for example more flexible work time or sure. if you have to do something with your kid sure take the day off we'll support you or do some of your work from home i mean mm -hmm. covid has been good for that in kind of changing changing flexibility a little bit but still people are now finding, when do I stop working? Now, if I can yeah. work at home, does that mean I have to work 24-7 at home? You yeah. know, like, Am I on a leash if my <laughs> iPhone tells me there's a message at 10 p.m. and somebody wants a response? And, and, you know, I remember when cell phones came out, that was the conversation that if you had a cell phone, your company could get you at any hour, so you'd be on a leash. And so there was like a pushback against co corporate cell phones because people thought, oh, it's just an insidious way to get you to work all the time yeah. and be on call, right? Um, and now the internet has changed that dynamic and, and then COVID working from home has exacerbated that. So we do have to figure out these boundaries. But at the end of the day, we're seeing a shift in young Japanese nationals, women and men who expect quality of life and this is exciting, right? This is a great thing, I think, for, for Reiwa Japan's future sustainability. Um, and if corporations can catch up and, and if the public policy sector, I mean, Japan has a strong, you know, universal daycare system that we still have access problems in, you know, overly populated Tokyo, and that's not resolved. But, you know, it does have a generous, you know, childcare system. It has maternity and parental leave, paternity leave that's just not being accessed by men and that needs to be accessed, right? And so how do we encourage mandatory access? If you have, you know, a child under two, like, go the hell home. <laughs> I'm just like, what I mean, are you doing? That, this is that your one thing, chance to be a parent, right? Yeah, that thing about childcare is really interesting. And I, I feel really privileged now uh, to know that when my kids were little and I needed to work full time, that I was able to get into daycare because it's not just Tokyo. We have wait lists here in Hiroshima. Mm, we have okay. wait lists all over the country. And some of my friends who were working for limited contracts who didn't have the tenure or the, the secure yeah. contract that I did. Couldn't get in. They couldn't get in. And no, I was and it's prioritized. True. So yeah. there are a lot of gaps there. And now we're there seeing are. in the U.S. that they're talking about making preschool covered, right? And mm. that's something Japan should really consider. Yeah. And it is mostly covered, but you need to have it available, that's right. that's a big big part of it, you know. And and often like the you know the the policy framework is too rigid, like you suggest. That if you're not in a full time and you can show and you have the certificate from your employer that you're full time, that does leave a lot of parents, working parents, out of the loop. And for parents working shift work, when the daycare has got set hours, how do you then deal with the evening shift if you don't have a you know a two parent dynamic or if Two parents can't do that that because they're both on shift work. I mean, it's hard to know. So there's definitely gaps. But I think, I mean, Canada doesn't have a national childcare strategy yet. We're now finally, you know, talking about having had a release of a feminist budget, right, in, in Canada in 2021 for the first time. And and we're seeing investments in in sort of a national childcare again potential uh, program being built. Um, so from that perspective, I think Japan does have a good safety net for part of part of the demographic but it's not universal in that sense yet but there's there's i think this it's like whatever you do informally is actually the culture in those companies too and so it's not just what the actual contract says of your working hours it's what do people actually do like there's the law and then there's what people actually do exactly and it's what people actually do is the problem and and like getting corporations to like dismantle leave. that you can't right? do overtime is the rule, but you can't really leave until your senpai leaves or leaves. the boss leaves, right? So, yeah. you know, it, that's what actually happens. That's the actual problem right there. And maybe COVID forcing everybody home where you're not being invited out to go drinking because that's also a different pressure to keep, you know, not, you're not working, but now you're still having to fraternize after hours and not go home to your family. I just think... It's fascinating to me, and this is the shift, I think, if we can get a focus on private life, private family life that is emerging in young Japanese couples that they want to actually spend time together. They actually want to see each other and they want to have time with their children and they want to spend quality time doing leisure or sports or whatever it is. I mean, in Canada, I feel like 
my parents jealously guarded their private time off work. It was like, you did your hours and it's like, okay, boom, done. Like now it's, let's get on with sports and music and choir and church and what what it's really about. I was so impressed when I took students to Australia and we were there for a two month, one month program. And I, I put my son in elementary school, you know, just to have an experience abroad. And that was really fun. And he had a big hat and shorts, super cute. And uh, I was picking him up after school at about 3 p.m. And I was not the only parent, lots of other parents there. And I was like, are you going back to work? And, you know, some people are like, yeah, I have to go back or I'll work from home. But this is family time. And once the kids go home with them, I mean, maybe I was in a really unusual place, but wow, quality of life, family, work-life balance. It seems so much more healthy than what I was experiencing for myself, even in Japan right. and being and even in, social pressured to stay right. in the office later. Even later. in academia, even in academia, what floored me is, you know, everyone in Canada, I would say, you know, academia is supposed to be the quintessential work-life balance because you teach, but you can do your research and all of your writing at home and you do, your, you know, your ethnographic stuff, your research uh, on, on the grassroots and you go and you travel to those locations. But ultimately, aside from your teaching hours and your office hours, there's no FaceTime. You're at home balancing amidst family. And I came to Japan and I was floored at the, at the pace and pressure of the publisher parish dynamic amongst Japanese professors at Todai in particular, and maybe University of Tokyo is, is particularly competitive, but people were working until, you know, 7 and 8 p.m. in their offices on campus yep. sometimes. And there was this intense pressure that they didn't, if they didn't have their research publication out within like, you know, a year of doing the research, it was old data. Yeah. It was old data. And I was like, <laughs> within a year? Like that's, in North American publishing cycles, you would never get it out. And it would not be seen to be well thought out because it's too quick. You can't possibly parse the data and think about it and reflect and then have something, unless it's really just data crunching. But then what are we learning from that? So why are we publishing all of these articles that really don't say very much? It's just pushing out numbers. And I think there's this speed around the way academic is, you know, academia is shifting. And particularly in Japan, it's, it's picking up all that informal culture and bring it into academia. Um, yeah. And it, I mean, it doesn't I, make sense. If, if it's about your research and it's, if it's about your writing and things that you're doing for teaching, I, I can kind of understand that. But if it's just, I incur, or that pressure to stay in your office until late at night, just to be seen that you're working mm. hard, which I know is very typical in corporate mm. culture in Japan as well. It's not merit-based. It's not based on yeah. what you're actually producing, what product you're actually helping with the company, you know, in infrastructure, but it's, it's just being seen to be working hard. And that was my first experience in Japan when I came over as a jet and a Japan English teacher, it's a ALT position for anybody yeah. wondering and very good program. But I had to be at the office from nine to five, which is fine. It's a normal work day, Monday through Friday. And I wasn't utilized a lot. So I ended up studying a lot of Japanese at my desk, which was fantastic. And I was so happy that to have those three years where I studied so much. Um, But I saw a lot of people who were in the communal office next to me. They were napping or chatting or wandering around, not doing anything, but they would stay late at night. And then I was the one who wasn't using my time wisely. You know, like for me, that was a real- Because you left at five. Because you left at five, I, you were being selfish and wagamama. <laughs> I left every day right at five, sometimes like ready to go and watching the clock. Like oh, a, me too. Like a teenager in high school, you know, but I, I worked hard. I did a lot. I produced a lot, yeah. but I wasn't considered a hard worker because I didn't spend the time. And well, I definition. saw this years later yeah. when I was working at university, you have this same concept creeping in. And I hear yeah. from students at the corporate culture with the same yeah. concept creeping in. It's And that has got to change. That's fundamental for Japan. We are seeing, 
I mean, I think one of the positive shifts out of the pandemic in that regard is it it fundamentally changes towards a productivity model because if what you're, I mean, unless you're going to literally open up a Zoom call and force all of your team to be on a Zoom call with you to prove that they're working so you've got FaceTime with one another, I mean, managers now under the pandemic, they need an output or a work product or something that moves forward during the days and the weeks and the year now, right? Going on to year two. And so managing teams remotely means we're having to reevaluate those metrics of what is productivity? What is individual and team contribution? How do we metric it? How do we measure it? How do we value it, right? And then how do we shift the corporate culture to be more around that, even if you do go back to the office and can have a FaceTime because FaceTime is not productivity, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's just FaceTime. Yeah. Um, and I think we'll get there. And I think, I think the pandemic in that sense for Japan, in terms of moving the dial for Japan, this is the only thing, only a pandemic, I think, could have accomplished the speed with which companies you know, bit the bullet and said, we have to go all online effective immediately. I don't think we would have seen that in any other context. And Japan, when they when they choose to shift, they ramp up and they shift insanely fast, right? You get yeah. tremendous progress. And so for me, that's my hope with diversity and innovation being seen yeah. as an interlocking pair is for those companies who want to move the dial and they're ready to invest in their people systems they can seriously have impact and increase their profits and retain their talent and just... And and there's only one thing you yeah. have to do. You only have to convince one person. At the top. At the top. <laughs> and But this is true, not only for Japan, this is true anywhere in the world. Yeah. If you have a leader of a company, a founder of the company usually, who is passionate about something, uh, social equity, environmentalism, you know, equal rights... Uh, sustainability in general, you will see change happen yeah. and everybody gets kind of on board or they leave, you know, and it's kind yeah. of a passion led from the top. And this is especially true in Japan. Especially true in especially. Japan, which is, I think, the opportunity that we, for our, you know, respective, we haven't gotten to your <laughs> your sustainable, we've talked a little bit about sustainability and tourism and also your, your Seeking Sustainability series, but I think for sustainability or for diversity in what I call diversity and innovation, which is the output is inclusion, um, I think we have this opportunity, right, to really think and think and co-create with those top leaders to say, how can we help yeah. you be profitable? and be sustainable and have impact for the long game because Japanese companies, you know, there's this idea of legacy and being in it for the long game. Absolutely. Right? That it's, Absolutely. So it's consistent with corporate yeah. philosophy in Japan to be Absolutely. thinking about these investments over the long term. You look, you look at the best companies in Japan, which are world famous, by the way, yes. you know, that yeah. people around the world emulate these leaders of, of companies who have Absolutely. led their company to success over a very long time. Long periods. And right? I... I connect that to like when I was teaching marketing at Kirikushi University students, and I connected it to, I said, look at companies that have been around for a long time. What's different? How is yeah. their brand different from someone or some company that might be successful now, but you didn't know about them five years ago? Now, what is the difference? The difference to me is long-term vision. And we see this, uh, like when I was talking to Asby Brown in the series, and he's talking about yeah. Japanese carpenters for temples. And mm -hmm. the planner of the temple, he was in his 80s. He's planning a temple, which is going to be around for a thousand years. I know. It's impressive. Unbelievable, right? And we have like the head of Kikoman. He's got great interviews online about his vision was to be 10 generations or more than 100 years after he died. That's what he wants yeah. his legacy to be. Right. So in terms of like sustainability, first think about what is your personal legacy? What right. do you want to have an effect on which might create positive change or any kind of change that you're, yeah. you find meaningful for the long term? And then yeah. you think about 
how you want your business to be, what kind of business you want to work in, what kind of business you want to collaborate with, and do they fit that same long-term vision? Because if it's long-term, it has got to be sustainable. It's got to take into account the needs of people and planet and profits, right? And think about it, right? When we're thinking long-term, and this is the thing that kind of floors me in terms of the caregiving issue, we know enough about human biology to understand there's a life cycle. Yeah. And there's a life cycle of when you have children, potentially in a given window that everybody's going to, all the men and all the women at some point who choose to have children, there's going to be a window when that hits them. <laughs> we, this is not rocket science. We know that. So for all of that group, that subgroup of women and men who choose to have children, we we can plan that at that part of the life cycle, they're going to need childcare support. They're going to need elder care support. We're knowing that they're going to have all of these extra things that the company can know and the public policy can know and plan for and mitigate for. And so the fact that we plan long-term, but don't understand life cycle, or we, we think that, and I think it's, we've not taken seriously that men have children. And that men are part of that life cycle, even if they're not the ones getting pregnant. And that they need to, as fathers, be brought into that that framework of having the right to spend time with their children and to nurture and imprint their zone of genius onto their children, just like women are imprinting their zones of genius onto their children. We want both parents imprinting and sharing, plus all the other aunts and uncles and adoptive grandparents and anybody else who would love to care give, you know, and build a village for those children. But fundamentally, if companies still sort of tune out and say, oh, men don't get pregnant, pregnant, ergo, men don't have childcare issues. They're not a part of the life cycle equation. We don't need to build around that because we just get men to work and we'll just make them work longer. Well, that exploitative model that is being applied also to men in Japan, in particular, that young Japanese men are saying, yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, I would like to have a relationship with my children more than the relationship I had with my father who was never home. I, I think there's more of it in life. Or why marry, if that's the case, if that's my yeah. choice. Or they exit and they go they go abroad, frankly. They go yeah. to Canada and United States and Australia and Europe where they can have work-life balance, we, which is a talent. Are, Again, a, a, a brain drain, right? A huge exodus of talent. Uh, we need to keep that talent. We, we need to keep <laughs> right. it in Japan, for sure. And I'm I'm kind of seeing it. You know, when I think about uh, the more successful women working in Japan, running their own businesses, quite a lot of them did study abroad, yes. either in high school or university. They did. And they came back with more confidence, thinking there is a better way. It's yeah. not just that one way that I've more than one my choice. life, right? And so one thing I I often advise if people want to improve their travel destination or a business wants to improve how well they can appeal to international visitors, do you travel? You got to travel yourself, right? Right. Know your user. Yeah. Do you go abroad and see how are they doing it? Oh, I really like that. I don't really like that. I'm not going to use that, you know, and bring back these models and right. bring back these experiences of what was appealing to you as a visitor. And, and the then, empathy, right? The absolutely. empathy with the user. Absolutely. So I think that those 18 months of travel around Asia and Europe after we left Jet, that was like some of my best research and study and informative <laughs> time because I came back kind of understanding how varied people are even within different cultures and countries and living on a shoestring uh learning to be very frugal learning to think about what really matters like what what, what do you really need what does your happiness really require yeah and then we've we've all been thinking about it during coronavirus, like who are essential workers? It's the people that give you food. Well, do we have food security in Japan, right? Food like security, when, caregiving security. Yeah. These are like these are non-negotiable. And when you're traveling around Asia on a backpacker's budget, you you are on the ground level. You're you're there trying to get the local price for local vegetables or local food, right? And yeah. so that frugality and sustainability often plays really well together um, yeah. because you don't have that 
consumer use and throw away idea as you don't have the luxury of that no you don't have the luxury and if you did it you'd have to carry it you know yeah exactly exactly and and it's not the same for everybody like for us Mm -hmm. we prioritize certain things you know other travelers different things we met a variety of international backpackers um which really informed my whole idea of world politics and cultures Mm -hmm. and everything it's amazing but one guy i remember in particular he carried his own bottle of ketchup like for him, that was a key it's comfort to surviving, you know? <laughs> and then like for me, I, I might have like certain hand cream or something that I, yeah. I, I could not do without, right? So yeah. so the, even on that very basic level, you diversity realize, of, of yeah, needs, of core, uh, core needs on the Maslow's what hierarchy of essential needs. Most essential thing, right? It's and so I hope funny. I hope that we can get, you know, I think that it's great if companies can do that thinking and hear, like you say, hear from young, not only the younger generation, the new hires, but all different levels and really start listening actively to what are the pain points and then how do you solve them? Yeah. And certainly, I mean, I think you're doing that in your work for sustainability. Um, guiding companies, we're trying to do that for diversity and on the people front. Um your podcast, because time has just flipped by, we could talk for two hours, I'm sure. Um, you have this amazing, you know, Seeking Sustainability Live. You've done how many now? Like, in just so many. How many? Oh, uh, yesterday. Uh, today, I'm doing 238 episode. Episode wow. 238. Yeah, and, and this I, started know, with the pandemic? Started with the pandemic. I was doing an in-person event um kind of a seminar people would buy tickets and they would come mm-hmm. for two hours we would have short talks we would ha- eat vegan food on reusable plates we would exchange items mm. that no longer needed we had a zero waste shop we nice. did a diy section like i i really wanted people to come to this event and think oh, sustainability it's not so hard like it's, right. it's something I but can it takes try. a community, right? Oh yeah. And it takes people to see it in action. And so yeah. that, that kind of, yeah. So that model, that mm-hmm. was the start of it. And then it became like during coronavirus, we can't eat. <laughs> what am I going to do? And then oh. going online, connecting with people that I thought would be interesting in terms of. And so many across Japan outside of Hiroshima then. I never knew awesome. that it would continue. You know, I just thought, I just try it. Let's try something new. And uh, yeah, I just keep finding more and more people. I have learned so much. It's an amazing network. Um, All of these people are doing interesting things in their own lane. So I feel like my role is kind of to to connect all the lanes and to to highlight what they're doing to a wider audience because they're doing a great job, but they're focused on what they're doing. And they don't don't necessarily get known outside of that, right? I mean- same thing for the Enjoy Thought Partner Network is like so many interesting people in Japan, but they don't know of each other. You yeah. think, well, well, you need to know of each other. You need yeah. you need to know and amplify each other because yeah. you're doing similar things Absolutely. in your own lanes that are and, synergistic. And now and- something that's really interesting, which is happening is people are contacting me and saying, oh, we need to find someone who's doing right. this, which is kind of sustain, you know, sustainable. And do you know anybody? And they I, want the niche I send person. Them, I send them yeah. five, five people that I know I've talked to and they talked about Absolutely. this, you know, so it's, it's a great, great resource. A, well, I think, talent. you know, it's co- being a connector, right? I think we're connectors. I it's, it's, People saying, I need somebody who can talk about this area of, you know, masculinity or this area of whatever, of, of being queer or whatever it is. And I can say, oh, well, I know these many people and they could talk about that. And But they, it's where to begin to even find those people. Right. And I think we, you know, it's, it's, it's how do you build these networks so that they have visibility and particularly that then hopefully also Japanese leaders see how much support there is. For sustainability and for diversity in Japan. Yes. This is not this is not an unusual place to be or an un- unusual value proposition. It's actually, you know, really well supported in yeah. Japan for these yeah. facets. And I think making that visible is so key. So your 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 series has been, I think, outstanding. And you know, obviously inspired me as well. I'm gonna ask you for a one-minute takeaway or message. Yes. 
uh, that I you want to share. Uh, do you do you know what you have to to share with the audience yes. and your takeaway? Yes, yes. Uh, I would say now is the time to see people that we mm. we are all hiding behind masks. And it's really hard to show empathy and kindness for other people. But my homework for anyone listening to this is today in some way, even if you're just online, like what other people are doing, even if it's just on Facebook with the like button, uh, comment on something positive, say you appreciate something, let them know. In uh, doing web content, we know we get people complaining or saying negative things, but very rarely do you get people raving about what you do. So mm. spend a moment, rave about someone and show that you appreciate them. If you're on the street, hold open a door for someone. And wave Share at a love. little kid. You know, it's really difficult with the mask on, but yeah, you can, really. you can do it. Show your humanity, show that you're willing to see other people because I think right. seeing other people is particularly hard now during and being seen and being seen right being seen and appreciated i think is at the core of inequality so that's such a huge you know gift to be seen as you suggest even if it's a stranger just you know saying hi or opening the door unexpectedly that can you know make make a difference and i think i'll circle back to one of your first points about you know the increasing rates of suicide in japan for women in particular but also it's very high for men in japan yeah. In Asia, it's, it's it's high for both women and men in Japan, which I think is a red flag we need to take seriously. Um, and so those uh, those acts of kindness and uh, amplifying others. And during a pandemic, I think there's so much uh, pain. Yeah. Um, and you look for the smiles and the eyes under the mask, but it's not yeah. the same, is it? It's not no, quite the same. And, and it's, so, you don't get the full. It's so difficult. So even with your eyes, if you're, you know, being friendly, it, it's so hard. So just mm. raising your hand or saying, konnichiwa mm. or hello or something. Making it know, bigger. <laughs> something that's more expressive. It means, it means a lot. And like you said, we don't know what, what people are going through. And a lot of people yeah. are struggling. <laughs> So if you just make a little bit more effort, you know, online or in person, I think yeah. it can go a long way. Excellent. Well, thank time. you so much, JJ, for a fascinating conversation that went all over the world so and back to Hiroshima. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I certainly want to have more of these conversations again. And I appreciate you're in the Thought Partner Network and, and that we can have that relationship over time as well and keep amplifying well, I'm each other. I'm looking forward to continuing the conversation yes. next week, That's Tuesday, true. 5 p.m. on the 18th, as you will revisit my right. show and we will that's talk true. more about the great work that you're doing so <laughs> that's true much. thank you for that plug i forgot about it <laughs> awesome thank you so much jj and on thank that you. note i will uh do my my last bit of announcements and play our outgoing song which i'll invite you to enjoy as well but you have a little refresh so um we are looking forward, of course, uh, to our, our next uh, live stream next week. Also, at this time, uh, we will be welcoming Catherine O'Connell, who's founder and principal of Catherine O'Connell Law. Uh, she will share about her legal practice here in Tokyo. Who's you know she's won many awards. Um, a pioneer, really. I think uh, so inspiring. Also for me, in terms of how I think about my business. Um, and also she'll share about her upbringing in New Zealand with many, many brothers. And I think that's really interesting how it's affected, you know, her view uh, of men as allies for change. And of course, we'll hear about her new, very innovative uh, podcast called Lawyer on Air. So that's also another exciting thing that she'll share about. Um, Enjoy, of course, as a multidisciplinary team, uh, we have consultants, educators, facilitators who are all Japan experts and who are diversity experts. And we are committed to supporting companies and senior leaders on building their people systems uh, so we can really make a diversity positive workplace. Um, these are the lifelines that we need within our companies and they'll strengthen the sustainability of those, those uh, companies and also their legacy for the long game as well as their profits, right? We know this. So investing in diverse talent mobilization as a business strategy is just a no brainer. And certainly that's one of the messages that we wanna promote for our Enjoy team. So have a good day, everyone. Thank you for joining.
imagine a world without prejudice, bullying, or fear. Imagine a world where our individuality is respected by all our peers. Inclusion and equity are more than words or just a ploy. They are workplaces rich with diversity, creating worlds we all enjoy. Imagine a better world where we all can live free and play, where the spirit of teamwork and solidarity give hope and light the way. Good business isn't just profits or pushing for sales. Good business must strive to be just as it scales. Good business is planting a seed in a visionary trail to foster an environment where diverse abilities prevail. Let's build that new world in solidarity. Diversity rocks innovation. Let's build solutions for equality to bring hope and transformation. Let's honor co-creation, honor individuality, with a vision for togetherness beyond screens and virtual reality. All it takes is a little to change the world a lot. Money comes and goes, but legacy isn't forgotten.